Remember, the Old Testament is always a prototype. It is always a shadow of that which is to follow, that which is to come later in the New Testament. And yet, within the record of the Old Testament, we find that great care was given and great attention was devoted to the way that the glory of God was treated and those that were to carry the glory of God in the way, in the manner in which it was to be transported. That was the problem that we read about with David a couple of other times in other lessons about David's attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant back from the house of Abinadab. It was not a matter of the heart, for David was man after God's own heart. It was not a matter of sincerity, because David was very, very, very sincere. But brothers and sisters, there are methods and there are ways in God. And as we've said in our lesson on revival, that is the reason that I believe that God is moving very, very slowly in the earth. He is building a great and a deep foundation in the hearts of many people in many places simultaneously about the way that we treat His presence. Now, after my experience with the Lord in January of 1990, and we prayed and we fasted and we cried out to God to come for three long years, when the heavens opened in January of 1993, and revival that we had prayed for and fasted for and pursued with all of our heart finally came, I was absolutely, totally convinced that within six months' time, the whole world was going to be ablaze with revival. I was convinced within six months' time that the big stadiums, the big football stadiums and baseball stadiums were going to be filled with Christians, that every church was going to be filled to overflowing, that the book of Acts would be back upon us as a church and as a people again. But it didn't happen in 93. It didn't happen in 94 or 95 or 96 or 97, 98, 99, or 2000. But rather, what did happen is God continued slowly, carefully, meticulously going from place to place, life to life, ministry to ministry, church to church, and revealing His presence and revealing His power in a measure, a very small measure, I believe, to see what people would do with it, to see what people would react in that way, and whether they would come on in that place and constrain it. One of the things that we talked about earlier was constraining the glory of God when it comes. Many places have had visitations of the glory, but very few have seen visitation turn into habitation. And God is not interested in visitation. He wants habitation. God is not interested in our generation coming and just causing a great explosion of His presence, a great explosion of His glory and suddenly sweeping millions and millions and millions of people into the kingdom and let the church run on the momentum for that for a few more years. I believe what God is doing is He is carefully, meticulously laying the foundation for a glorious church without spot, without blemish, the bride of Christ prepared and made ready for His coming, which I believe could very well be very near. We don't know that, and we're not going to get hung up on trying to put dates on things. 
But I think that there's something that is happening in the earth. And I think people sense it everywhere. We see things in a different way in these days than perhaps we have before. And what God is doing is He is laying a very deep foundation in the church, raising up a people that are passionately in love with His presence, raising up a church, teaching them how to yield, teaching them how to hunger for His presence, hunger for His glory, teaching them how to move on and let the move of God move and yield to the Holy Spirit understanding the things of God in the flow of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. God is teaching us carefully and patiently as little children. And I think that He is looking. He is looking at the hearts of people because what God has in His heart to do is not just a revival that lasts 18 months to three years. I believe He's looking for a reformation where the church is radically changed. Even defining of the church is radically different than our understanding has been in the past. I look at my own children that have grown up around all of this. And I think to myself that my youngest daughter is 14. But my youngest daughter has seen more, has personally experienced more in her own life as a 14-year-old young lady than I knew even existed when I was 40. And I look at a new generation of children and teenagers that are arising in the earth that are just radical pursuers of the presence and the glory of God. And I think that's what the heart of the Father is to see emerge, is He wants people that have changed their perspective from revival being a momentary outpouring, sovereign only in the will of God that has a very clear beginning and is quickly over that we bask in it and run on the momentum of it for a time and talk about how wonderful it was back when. God wants to change the very identity of the church. And one of the things that we're going to look at in this lesson that we're moving into is that God is calling us to become carriers of His glory. In the Old Testament, very strict regulations were in force about those who were called Levites, who were going to transport the Ark of the Covenant and the role in the ministry that the Levites had. And the problem with David and the problem with Yuza and dying and the whole account that we've looked at at Obadidim's house and everything was a result solely and completely of the fact that David did not know how to properly carry the glory. He did not properly understand how to carry the presence of God. And that's what God is doing in our generation, is He's raising up a church and raising up ministries and raising up people everywhere that understand that, that He's called us to be carriers of His glory. The world is waiting to see the revelation of glory. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, He said, when I came unto you, I did not come with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith not rest in the wisdom of men, but that your faith rest in the power of God. That's what the world is longing to see. My brothers and sisters, there's a great revival going on of darkness in the earth of great, great revival of darkness, of people that are caught up into witchcraft, 
people that are caught up into the occult. I go to England quite often. England and all of Europe is one of the darkest places I've ever been spiritually. It has a rich heritage spiritually. But in recent decades that have passed, the church has begun to fade and the church has begun to decline. And churches that were once vibrant with the presence of God and glory of God sit empty today. And on the other hand, those that promise people supernatural power and supernatural ability by the powers of darkness, all of that is on the increase everywhere, everywhere that we go there. And the reason for that is most people that have been involved in Satanism and in witchcraft and the occult, if you go and research it, you will find that most of those people came from Christian backgrounds. They had a longing and a hungering for supernatural reality. And when they didn't find it in the church, when they didn't find it in what we have done, that hunger and that thirsting for spiritual reality overwhelmed their traditional belief system and they went looking in other places and the devil came and offered them a counterfeit and offered them a substitute that only produces death but they believe it's God. Now, understand something with me. People that are involved in Satanism, they really believe that Satan is God. And they really believe at the end of the game, he's going to win. That's the deception that they live in. As we've traveled around in England, we've run into people. I mean, my wife and my daughters were walking down a street, a busy sidewalk in a street in a city in England. The first trip we made, we've made 15 trips to England in the last three years to minister there. Our first trip, it was like God opened our eyes to the reality of these things. My wife and two daughters were walking down a busy sidewalk. Some teenagers walked up to them on a sidewalk, walked right up to them, got in their face and said, don't you ever forget, Satan is Lord over our city. They'd never seen my wife. They'd never seen my girls, but they saw the glory that was upon them. Walked up to him on a crowded sidewalk. Don't you ever forget, Satan is the Lord over this city. In another city where we were, the Satanist would come and open the church doors while the meetings were going on and scream obscenities. In another city, they would come and put pornography all over the foyer of the church while the meeting was going on. In another city, in Wales, they came and took pocket knives and cut tires and scraped the paint of cars that were parked out in front of the church. You see, these people have great, great spiritual discernment. In fact, their discernment is greater than the discernment of most Christians. I was in a church in upstate New York earlier this year, and there was a man that was in those meetings that had been a satanic priest for many years. And God had saved him and delivered him and filled him with the Holy Spirit and he's in revival, and he loves Jesus with all of his heart. But I had lunch with this man one day. He told me some amazing things. The first thing that he told me is he said, Brother John, he said, when I was a Satanist involved with the Satanic Church, he said, we had more people at our prayer meetings, and we prayed harder, and we prayed longer than charismatic Christians pray." pastor calls a prayer meeting and they get the same little handful of people. Most of them don't bother to come. 
He said, when I was a Satanist, said we used to have our prayer meeting packed out. And said, we prayed more when I was a Satanist than what I see in most New Testament, charismatic, full gospel, Pentecostal, word of faith, word of doubt, and unbelief churches. The second remarkable thing that he told me that I will never forget is he said, it's terrifying to me to see the attitudes that most Christians have about God. He said, do you know what the fourth commandment in the Satanic Bible is? I said, I don't have any idea, but I'm probably getting ready to find out, right? He said, yes. He said, the fourth commandment, just like we have Ten Commandments, God gave through Moses, the Satanists have their own Ten Commandments as well. But he said, the fourth commandment in the Satanic Bible, and don't go get a Satanic Bible and go reading this, just take my word for it, okay? He said the fourth commandment in the Satanic Bible is do whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. If it feels good, do it. And he said it is terrifying to me as a believer in Jesus filled with the presence of God at the carnality of the church and the carnality of most Christians because they do not have even a remote clue of how close they are to the edge of not following after God, but literally following the commandments of the devil. He said, most Christians come to church with this, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? I have my rights. I have my wants. I have my expectations. Don't preach on sin. I might not come back next week. Don't do that, Pastor, because I might put my checkbook back in my purse or put my checkbook back in my pocket, and we don't allow that kind of preaching here in our church because don't do that. I mean, don't get too close to me in that regard. Jesus is coming, but He is coming for a glorious church, a church that knows how not just to experience His glory, but a church that knows how to see His glory sustained. I will never forget one of the most powerful experiences, one of the most enlightened experiences that I ever had in revival was during the Brownsville Revival in Pensacola, Florida. Because our parents live in Pensacola and we travel through Pensacola often, we were in Pensacola to visit the family. And my son, Matthew, looked at me and he said, Dad, can you and I go to the Brownsville Revival? And I said, sure. I mean, I had been numbers of times, but... He had not been. He said, could you and I go? And, and so we went. I mean, it was wonderful. We got prayed for. We enjoyed the meeting. I mean, we just got saved all over again. Every time I went to Brownsville, I just want to get saved. If you ever went to the Brownsville Revival, you know what I'm talking about. Just the holiness of God that was there in that place. But the great blessing that came to me did not come in that meeting at Brownsville. It actually came at a McDonald's at about 1130 that same night in Pensacola because Matt and I were going home and he was hungry and we pulled into a McDonald's and we went inside to eat. We were sitting in the dining room and there was one young man seated on the other side of the dining room. And from across the dining room, this man said, how was the meeting tonight? And I laughed and I said, well, I guess anybody in a suit and tie at 1130 on a Thursday night In Pensacola, Florida, you just naturally assume they've been to the Brownsville Revival. 
He said, yeah, I thought that's probably where you'd been. He said, well, how was the meeting tonight? I went, oh, it was really good. I mean, we're literally shouting from opposite ends of the dining room. He said, how many people were there? I said, I don't know. The main sanctuary seats about 2,000. It was filled. There were another probably 2,000 in the overflow. He said, man, that's really something, isn't it? I said, it is. He said, what did Steve preach on? Steve Hill was the evangelist that God was using there in such a wonderful way. He said, what did Steve preach on? Steve, Steve, my good buddy, my friend, my next door neighbor, my brother, Steve. I love Steve. Steve and I have been friends for years and years and years and years and years. That was the impression he gave me. What did Steve preach on? And I told him something. I don't remember what it was. He said, well, what happened then? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, how many got saved? I said, I don't know. I said, maybe 200, 300. He said, did they all jump up out of the seat and come running down to the front when that girl sang the song about the mercy seat? I said, yeah, man. This guy knew more about the meeting that night than I knew. And I was there and he wasn't. And finally, I said to him, I mean, he's been asking all the questions. Finally, I said to him, well, that must be your home church. And what he said next just blew me away. He said, I've never been to that revival. But he said, all of my friends have gone. All of my drug addict friends and all my drinking buddies and all my sinner friends, they've all gone to that revival. And every one of them met Jesus. And he's changed their lives and transformed them. And they're totally different. And they're all praying for me. And one of these nights, very soon, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to get saved. And Jesus is going to deliver me from drugs and alcohol and He's going to change my life. Now any minister of the gospel that is worth a plug nickel sees an opportunity like this. This is literally a fish trying to jump out of the lake and get in the boat. This is a fish trying to crawl up the anchor rope wanting to get caught. So obvious God is moving in His life. And so in a real cool kind of way, I said to this young man, I said, well, you know, you can go down to Brownsville and get saved. But I said, what you need to realize is you can get saved right now in a McDonald's on Cervantes Street in Pensacola. And what he said next, I will never forget. What he said next was this. He said, no. He said, I'm not getting saved tonight in this McDonald's. He said, I'm going down there to that church. Because Jesus is in that church. Now here's a man on drugs, alcohol, full of the devil, living in the world, that had seen, had actually seen the results and the transformation and the fruit in the lives of people he knew and were associated with that had been touched by the glory not touched by doctrine, not touched by theology, not touched by teaching, but had gone down there to that church where there was an open heaven and had gone in there and had had a confrontation with God and were transformed by it. And this guy had it firmly etched in his heart that Jesus is down there in that church. And I can go down there. It's not that I can go. One of these nights, I'm going to go. And I'm going to go down there. And I'm going to get under an open heaven. And I'm going to meet Jesus. And He's going to touch me. And He's going to save me. And He's going to change me. 
And when that guy said that, it was like the Holy Spirit of God in McDonald's put a zipper on my mouth and just, and it was like the Lord said to me, leave him alone. Leave him alone. And all I said to that young man was this. I smiled at him and I said, young man, don't wait too long. Don't wait too long. Go soon. Hurry on down there. Meet Jesus. He will touch you. He will change you. He will transform your life. Don't wait too long. I have no doubt in my mind tonight except that that young man did in fact go to that church and he did meet Jesus. Got saved, got delivered, probably went to Bible school. It's probably out there on a mission field someplace today. But the remarkable thing about that experience is here is a sinner. Here's a man that is walking outside the presence of God that has it firmly etched in his spirit, I can go to that church and I can meet Jesus. I can meet Jesus. My brothers and sisters, that's what God wants to do everywhere. Is He wants to establish His glory and His presence in every church, in every town, in every city, all across the counties, all across the regions, all across the states, all across America and the nations of the world. That even the lost people, they know where to go to meet God. The world is waiting to see a revelation of glory. Look in your Bibles. I'll not read it because we've already referred to it earlier. Highlight it again. 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 2 Corinthians 4.6, which are references to the fact that God wants to establish His presence and establish His glory in every church and in every life. That He wants us to live under an open heaven. That we are, in fact, the temple of the Holy Spirit. That we are the temple in which He lives. Now, we said early on that His glory has substance and may be experienced in a variety of ways. And we've already talked about those ways. But what needs to be understood in this lesson, in this time together, is that glory is transferable. That the anointing of God is both tangible and it is transferable. That means you can catch it. In fact, I like to say, and I borrowed this from something I heard Benny Hinn say years and years and years and years ago that I never forgot. He said, the anointing is not taught, it is caught. That the anointing cannot be taught, but rather it must be caught. It is transferable. It passes from one life to another. It passes from one ministry to another. What we associate with, what we hang around, is what we are going to become. And the anointing that is transferable and is imparted can be imparted by a variety of means. I want us to think together very quickly about the three most prominent ways that the anointing of God is transferred in Scripture. Now, there are other ways as well. But these three taken together will cover about 99% of the Scriptures that deal with this phenomenon. The first is by the laying on of hands. Church, when we lay hands upon people and pray, there is, in fact, a transference of the anointing of God 
from us to the life of that person. It's transferable. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy. He told him again in 2 Timothy. He said in 1 Timothy, Do not neglect the gift that is in you by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And later he said, Timothy, don't let this thing slip away. Stir it up. I'm convinced there's a great faith in you that was in your grandmother and in your mother, and I'm convinced it's in you by the laying on of my hands. The laying on of hands is a powerful, powerful, powerful means of ministry. It is the means by which the anointing of God was transferable. Go and look at the Gospels, and you will see Jesus laying hands on people. Go and read the book of Acts and you will see the apostles in the early church laying hands upon people and that there being a tangible, and I keep using that word for emphasis purpose, a tangible transference of the anointing of God. One of the most remarkable stories to illustrate this point that I've ever read was an article done by a professor in a medical school in Canada. He had been powerfully touched by revival in Toronto. He had gone to the meetings many, many, many times before. He was a neurosurgeon, and he taught neurosurgery in a medical school somewhere in the Toronto area, a very skilled physician and researcher. Well, he had been touched in revival at Toronto, but after a time, he decided, I want to do some research on revival. So he would go to revival meetings and love the presence of God and love the worship and love the ministry of the Word, but at ministry time, he would go and stand in a distant corner of the church and open a briefcase, take out a pad of paper and reach and get his pen and he would start writing notes. He would pick somebody out of the thousands of people arbitrarily there that wanted prayer and he would start writing all these notes about them. Today's date is November whatever, 2004. The person this evening is a man approximate weight, approximate height, approximate age. He's standing there with his hands uplifted, or he's crying, or he seems happy, or he's just standing around. And he goes on, he writes everything that he's observing about this person that's about to receive prayer. And so he's just taking notes. The ministry team comes, and they lay hands upon him. And he's writing what happens and how long it takes. And the person begins to cry. The person begins to laugh. The person falls to the floor. The person gets stuck to the carpet and can't get up. The person begins to laugh uncontrollably. The person is there in a peaceful posture. He's just writing all of these notes. And he waits. And he waits for as long as it can take for that person to be ready to leave. And when they are leaving the service, he goes to the door. He gives them his business card. And he tells them, introduces himself, I'm Dr. So-and-so, and and, um, I'm a believer, I love God, I'm not a skeptic, I'm not a critic at all, I'm just doing research on revival. He said, would you share with me your experiences tonight, and what you remember, and what you experienced, and how you felt, and how are you feeling now? And he continues to write all of these notes down. And then he says, would you be willing to let me call you in a couple of weeks by telephone and find out how you're doing a couple of weeks from now? And this physician did this to several hundred people. And then he wrote an article 
and it was called A Neurosurgeon Examines Revival. And what he said was this. He said, every manifestation, and we in our revival section, we went through all of those manifestations that are commonly seen in times of revival. He said, everything that's commonly seen in revival, he said, I can duplicate every bit of it in the operating room. And he went on to describe some of the latest technologies in neurosurgery, whereby a person undergoing neurosurgery, they put them to sleep. And while under anesthesia, they open the skull and they expose the surface of the brain. And then, this sounds terrible, but there's no pain involved. They allow the person to wake up and to come out of the anesthesia. And the reason for that is they want to do some mapping on the surface of the brain to figure out where all the little wires are and all the connections so that the surgery can be less invasive, and so they don't do more damage than what they're trying to fix, and so they can administer a low-voltage current of electricity to map these little circuits. He said people falling to the floor, people laughing, people having visions of bright lights, shaking. He had a medical terminology for every one of those. And then he said, as a physician, as a believer, As a researcher, this leads me to only one conclusion, and that is these people in revival are experiencing the flow of an unseen force, and their bodies are having a reaction to it similar to what they would react to the flow of electricity into their neurological system. And he said, that for me is only explainable by saying that that is the anointing of the Holy Spirit flowing into people and producing these reactions. Now, that was a very interesting article. I've read other articles by neurologists that have basically said all of those same things, though not quite as eloquently as this particular doctor. By the laying on of hands, there is a flow of the anointing of God into people. It's better felt than tell. It's not taught. It's caught. And it can be transferred by the laying on of hands. Secondly, it can be transferred by the speaking of the anointed word. This is the way Peter ministered in the book of Acts. Well, you find everywhere Peter went. Peter didn't lay hands on people. Peter just spoke to them. To the cripple, he said, rise up and walk. To the dead woman, he said, rise up and go. To a paralyzed man for eight years, he just told him, rise up, take up your bed and walk. Peter spoke. And when he spoke, the anointing of God and the power of God was transferred. Thirdly, it is transferred by association and environment. By association and environment. You hang around the anointing of God. I cannot explain it. I don't understand how it works. I just know that it's true. You hang around that anointing, that anointing gets on a life. I was with R.W. Schombach in Africa. R.W. Schombach was an usher for A.A. Allen early in his meetings, was there and saw all the miracles. R.W. Schombach was an usher, took up the offering, set up the chairs, helped set up the tent, traveled with him. A.A. Allen's gone. R.W. Schombach has gone all over the world carrying that same kind of an anointing. Why? It's transferable by association. Examples of the glory being carried or sustained through the anointing. 
And examples of this that I'm going to leave it for you to go and research it on your own. Exodus 34, a story of Moses and how he went up to the mountain to meet with God and how he was in the glory of God for 40 days and 40 nights. And church, when he came back from the mountain, Moses had been in the glory for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses knew that, but what Moses didn't know is not only had Moses been in the glory, but the glory had gotten in Moses to such a measure that they actually had to put a veil over his face because his skin was emanating a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant light that was coming from him. A brilliance of the glory was emanating. And the people, the children of Israel, couldn't even get around him until they covered him up. Because looking at him was like trying to stare into a welder's ark without protective eyewear. The brilliance of the glory of God that was flowing. You see, Moses had carried a measure of that that he experienced on the mountain. He continued to carry that in his life in such a measure that they had to cover up his head when he got around them. And oh, by the way, go read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, where Paul spoke of this event and this experience that Moses had had. And he said, if the giving of the law, which was producing death, was accompanied by so much glory that they had to shield the face of Moses, how much greater glory is ours in the New Testament? That's that glory that Jesus gave to us. God wants us to live in, wants the church to live in. The glory of God that was on Peter in Acts 5, 15 and 16. Her brothers and sisters, there was such an anointing of God, such a presence of God on Peter that all he's doing is walking down the street. And anyone that got around him that was sick got well. Anybody that got around him that was infested with devils got delivered because of that tangible anointing. That measure of the presence of God. The perfume of God. Some of you are looking a little confused. I remember years ago in the early days of our traveling ministry, we stopped right here in Georgia as a family. We stopped at a convenience store out beside Interstate 75 somewhere in Georgia to get gas. And I had gone in a convenience store to pay for the gas. And inside that convenience store, there were people smoking all over the place. And I opened the door. It was like a cloud wasn't the Shekinah, it was Marlboro. And I just sort of inhaled a big load of fresh air from the outside and felt my way through the crowd and paid for the gas and felt my way back out and found the door and went back outside. But when I got back in the car, my wife said, you stink. And I said, thank you very much. But what had happened was, is I'd gotten in that environment of all that smoke and that smoke had gotten on me. That cigarette smoke had gotten on my hair, on my skin, and on my clothes. The glory, the anointing, works in a very, very similar manner. That was what was happening in Acts chapter 5. The ministry of Charles Finney that we've referred to already. Charles Finney walked in this enormous anointing of the holiness of God. And it was with him everywhere he went. Charles Finney, it is said, would get on a railway train, would sit down in the car and be reading a newspaper. And the other people in the train car with him would start to get uncomfortable, not even knowing why, not even knowing who he was. And people would get saved or they'd get up and leave. They had to. Charles Finney would be preaching in a church in Chicago with the windows closed and the doors closed. And people walking down the sidewalk on a winter day in Chicago, walking by the front of the church 
would fall to their knees and begin to repent, would fall to the sidewalk under the power of God, under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, and not even know why that it was Finney inside the building, 